Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 7th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The government is committed to establishing a citizens' assembly on drugs this year. The group will consider the laws prohibiting the use of drugs and if the war on drugs is winning. It is expected they will recommend if possession of drugs for personal use should be decriminalised or not. They may go further and recommend legalising drugs or some drugs at least. Using drugs like cannabis for medicinal reasons will also be considered as well as the services needed to reduce harm for drug users. Last week two Fianna Fáil TDs held a press conference. James Lawless and Paul McAuliffe called on the Taoiseach to speed up the process for appointing a Citizens' Assembly and get this conversation started. Paul McAuliffe TD joins us now and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for morning, taking Mike. the time to be with us uh, to talk a, a about this subject. Uh, why is it necessary to go to a citizens' assembly uh, in order uh, to draw up legislation if legislation is what is required? Well, I suppose what we've seen uh, with previous social issues is that the citizens' assembly has been really useful in terms of putting the evidence before um, 100 randomly selected members of the Irish public and uh, their decisions often act as a really strong indicator for politicians as to where the Irish public are on, on an issue. And I believe on this issue, uh, the Irish public are a little bit beyond where uh, the body politic is at the moment because the Misuse of Drugs Act, which was brought in the 70s, um, effectively hasn't worked because drugs have got worse under that uh, legislation. More people are taking drugs um, and we're dealing with all of the negative con- consequences of uh, the illegal drugs industry, but also uh, the issue uh, of addiction. And I suppose I start this conversation from the point of view of people who have become addicted uh, to an illegal drug. And I look at how that contrasts with somebody who might have become addicted to a legal drug uh, like alcohol. Uh, and I see very a very different experience. And I think by us decriminalising the person, um, we will get to a place where we will be able to help those people who find themselves in addiction far better. It's not the silver bullet. There's a lot of other issues that we need to deal with as well. Uh, but it certainly will be one step 
Um, so last week, uh, Fianna Fáil published the final episode of our three-part podcast series, Drugs in Ireland. <coughs> and what we want to do is just start the conversation ahead of the Citizens' Assembly. Uh, and in that podcast, we have a whole range of experts who talk about the different elements uh, of how Ireland's drugs po- policy works and doesn't work. Uh, and I think we're going to hopefully have that start to have that conversation now on our radio stations, on our TV stations, in our sitting rooms, um, perhaps even in, in, in our pubs, and talk about our relationship with alcohol, our relationship with other drugs, how we judge people who take different types of drugs, and the services that people need as well okay. uh, if they become uh, addicted or if they have problematic drug use. Your mind is made up, though, to some degree. Uh, you believe yeah, you should decriminalise. I'm very, very open to the concept yeah. of decriminalisation. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose the tricky bit and the, the, the bit that we, we kind of uh, other countries have found themselves as well is that the Portuguese model means that the substance is still illegal. Um, it's there, there's yeah. still uh, it's still not okay to take drugs. But what ha- what does happen is, is that you receive a civil sanction rather than a criminal sanction. Yeah, the Amer- but you still the have American a model trade. goes yeah. a step further, where yeah. effectively it throws it open to the capitalist market, and um, and it, it, there's a fully legal model. And it, it's raising a lot of taxes for uh, the individual states who have gone down that road. Uh, but if you decriminalise the person who uses drugs when they use drugs, they still have to get them off the gangs, and that's a big part of the drugs problem in this country. It really is, yeah, and I suppose that interaction between the illegal drugs industry and a decriminalised system, uh, it is is a real dilemma, and that's why the Joint Directors Committee before Christmas, which is a cross-party committee, uh, looked at this subject and published a very very far-reaching report, and they actually went further and recommended that pilot projects for some types of drugs will be established, which would allow a regulator, and I think the, the sort of simplest way of defining how they how they said that they talked about social clubs of people working together um, and they talked about organic uh, organic drugs I suppose like cannabis and so on uh, rather than synthetic drugs that are uh, grown in labor- or made in laboratories mm-hmm. and so on but I, I think the key thing here is and what we can't forget is is that if you or your child or your brother or your sister finds themselves in a problematic drug use and we have to ask why people uh, get into that position in the first place it has to do with trauma it has to do with adverse childhood experiences it can often be around mental health all of them have a pain and to soothe that pain they take a substance um, that takes that pain away we all do it every day if we have, if we have a headache we take uh, we take two uh, panadol these people are self-medicating. Um, it's not the same, but it's the same concept. And if you find yourself in that situation, or if you find yourself in the situation as a young person experimenting, do you want that one experiment, or do you want that reaction to, to trauma and, and pain to actually be the thing that may make you lose your job, may make you have a criminal sanction, may prevent you from ever traveling, may prevent you uh, from, from seeking treatment? If you if you fall into problematic drug use, because if you're committing an illegal act, you're going to be less likely to go to a doctor or a nurse. Okay, but we'll still see gangs shooting each other and killing each other and setting houses on fire and uh, demanding something in return for drug debts to be paid off, uh, either that the family pays up or we've heard of all sorts of sexual intimidation and different threats to families as a result of these characters. Yeah, there, there is some evidence abroad, and it's very difficult to look at different countries and different evidence and compare them. But there's some evidence abroad that by liberating the criminal sanction uh, on, on the drug, you actually 
uh, take away one of the levers that gangs have over people who become uh, addicted. Um, because the gangs know that it's a criminal act, they know that, that you're breaking the law, uh, and that is used in the overall, uh, the I suppose, the bag of tricks that they use to inveigle people. And like you're right, Mike, mm. the drugs industry is has a far greater impact on our society than the substance itself. Mm. In the early 70s, we, t- we were worried at the impact that the substance would have on each person, on their, on their families around them. And we shouldn't worry about that because all drugs are bad. But mm. now I see in my community and many communities around, around the country, the drugs industry is a far, is a far greater problem. Um, and I suppose it just depends on how how we are willing to legislate it and how the Citizens' Assembly uh, is willing to uh, to examine it. But and that's it. All these issues will be for the Citizens' yeah, it Assembly. Start, it starts, Mike, so. with that discussion, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. around de- decriminalisation. But okay. there's so much more to it. And t- talk to me a little bit more about decriminalisation. What does that mean? Um, well, the, the Portuguese model says that if you were caught with a substance um, that is illegal to have mm. uh, one of the scheduled drugs, uh, that instead of receiving a criminal sanction, sure. uh, you receive a civil but sanction. H- how much drugs? Uh, well, I suppose that will that will be for the the, the legislators to define. Mm. Uh, but essentially, it, it comes down to personal possession. Uh, so okay, enough, but, enough but, that but, you might use yourself, but not that you would uh, sell. So okay, would that if, be seven grams of cannabis, for example? Well, I suppose that's one of the difficulties is that every drug has a different impact on different people and it'll be up to legislators mm. to set that final amount. OK, well, that's the figure that was set in Gino Kenny's bill, uh, which uh, would decriminalise cannabis. Uh, the Den Taoiseach, your party leader, Michal Martin, uh, warned against glamorising the use of cannabis at the time. Uh, that was last November. Uh, is this now Fianna Fáil policy and has your party leader changed his view on this? Well, no, I would welcome the Taoiseach's or the Taoiseach's comments uh, in relation to uh, having a health-led approach because I think that's where we need to come to this discussion with. It has to be health-driven and it can't be justice-driven. Mm. Um, and, and also, it's like we are not but being he, he said he supports the decriminalisation now following your call last week, uh, but it wasn't the case last November uh, because uh, he said he didn't know where Gino Kenny got that figure of seven grams to, to start with, and he did say he wanted a more healthcare-based uh, uh, approach to uh, addiction and the harms of cannabis. Uh, and he said, I think we have to be careful uh, that we don't glamorise cannabis either because there are real concerns within the health community and uh, the medical community about what cannabis can do to young people. And I think some analysis has to be taken in terms of the impact of medical cannabis on young people. Yeah, and, and I don't disagree with any of that. And I go back to the point that mm. taking drugs uh, does have an adverse impact in your body, alcohol being one of those. But we, we also have a... Uh, that didn't a sound like a man who wanted to decriminalise cannabis uh, few, just a few months ago. Well, look, I, I can't second guess what what Michael Martin is saying, but what I what I am what I am sure of is is that he wants a health led approach, and that's what this process is about: is defining, taking out that soundbite, and actually starting to distill it down into into new legislation. But you're not going to convince cannabis users in the main uh, of needing medical attention or medical services or addiction services. Uh, most people will tell you they don't have a problem with it; it's just something that they do for fun. And most people who drink alcohol have the same view, but yep. we do know a small number of people do fall into that that, that area of, of problematic drug use 
whether it's alcohol or drugs. And you have to look. We do we do have a similar uh, drug available. It's, it's called methadone. It's far far stronger actually than than, than cannabis. Well, it I is think it's probably as strong as heroin. There's very little yeah. difference between the two. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it is fully legal. Yeah. It's paid for by the state and and is provided by the state. Mm. Um, and so you, you, that's what I'm saying. We, we have a very we have provided. a very hypocritical approach. Yeah, which means that heroin users who go onto a methadone program don't have to break into houses or prostitute themselves because the cost of a habit with heroin can be very expensive and usually people turn to criminality. Yeah, and, and that was that was a, that was a Rubicon we caught across back in the eighties. Um, and at the time, if you'd asked us to legalise a particular substance, mm. methadone, uh, and f- make it freely available uh, to people in addiction, uh, you would have had some horrific tabloid headlines. Mm. But that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose the point is, is that we, I think, you know, fifty years on from the Misuse of Drugs Act. I think we're ready for this kind of more mature conversation. What about heroin? Uh, I mean, that's a, a, a very addictive drug. Uh, there's a lot of very addictive drugs out, but would you be talking about decriminalising heroin and cocaine and uh, ecstasy and some of these other drugs? Yeah, and, and I think this goes back to this idea of legalisation versus uh, decriminalisation. So I think if somebody was found with a small amount of heroin or or cocaine, it is likely that that's not the first time that they've taken that. It's likely that they may have an addictive pattern. And so I want them not to go to jail. I want them to go uh, to, in, in, into treatment. So that's what decriminalisation was. Legalisation would be the state providing those substances, and I never see a scenario where we would do that. Um, but uh, the, I, I think the conversation focuses on decriminalisation per, of the person rather than uh, legalisation of the substance. Okay. Uh, you want the Citizens' Assembly to sit sooner rather than later. Um, there's no set date at this stage, is there? No, uh, I suppose there's a commitment in the programme for government for four Citizens' Assembly. We're two down, and the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs will happen this year. And I suppose what we wanted to do was to get the Taoiseach to appoint a chairperson. We saw that really useful uh, in, the, in, the, in the role of the previous two Citizens' Assemblies. Uh, the chairperson is important. We want the date. We also want uh, civic society to start this discussion. Uh, in our own political party, as you say, there is no Fianna Fáil position on this mm. other than to have the Citizens' Assembly. Um, so we want that discussion to happen our, in our common and our branch meetings across the country and, and equally with other organisations. But like, we want this conversation to happen right across the board. And the last thing we called on was for drugs task forces to be funded to have that conversation uh, because we have drugs and alcohol task forces. They are really embedded in many communities that have experienced uh, this type of, uh, of problematic uh, impacts of drugs. But there's many communities that, that have that same problem, but it's very hidden. And we need to try and facilitate that discussion for people in all the different demographics uh, and to get the country talking about the war on drugs, has it worked, and what do we need to do now to make sure that those illegal drugs gangs don't have agency capture of some of the most vulnerable people in the country. Okay. Uh, Do you believe that we are close to that step of decriminalising the use of psychoactive substances? Uh, Or or, uh, are we uh, even beyond that? Is there the prospect of the Assembly recommending that some drugs would be legalised? I think James Lawless would be in favour of legalising cannabis. Yeah, uh, I think I think when when people hear the evidence, sometimes they come up with the decisions that you don't expect, and that's ultimately what happened at the Joint Directors Committee. They recommended decriminalisation, and they also said there should be a pilot for something like uh, like ca- substances like ca- cannabis. Um, so it, 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 
I suppose that's always a possibility. Mm. No matter what happens, it'll have to come back to the Oireachtas and politicians will have to uh, legislate. Uh, and I suppose the difficulty there mm. is that on these social issues, on these issues that sometimes don't impact everybody, um, it can be hard for politicians to be brave sometimes. And i just say one, la- one mm. last thing, Mike. Yeah, yeah. If you or any of your family... Um, if you if you fe- uh, found that they were taking illegal drugs and that they had an addiction, you would do everything in your power to make sure, firstly, that they wouldn't go into jail because you know it would get yeah. worse there. Yeah. And secondly, you would try and get them in, into treatment and therapies. And if you have money, often you're able to do that. Um, and if you don't, more often than not, you're not. And that's an inequality that's in our society. And we have to ask ourselves the problem, if it's okay for you as an individual to pursue that strategy to try and make sure your relative doesn't get, get into a criminal position, doesn't go to jail, get the best lawyer, get the best doctor, then maybe that's something the state should be doing for people who have, perhaps have, have very deep trauma or people who have been through very difficult experiences. Okay. Um, what's your expectation? Uh, will there be a change in law and how quickly do you believe that would happen? Uh, I, I think we're coming to a position where we're, be, where we're very good at prescribing the problem. I'm not certain yet. We have a consensus around the solution. I know it's a very emotional issue and I know people don't want to make it worse and, and I know people mm. have dealing outside their door and they, they want it to stop. Uh, and so it can be very difficult for any of those groups to say it's okay to take drugs. We're not saying it's okay to take drugs. What we're saying is is that it's not right to send people to jail if they have an addiction. All right, we'll leave it there. And thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning, Paul McAuliffe, Fianna Fáil TD for Dublin Northwest. Now you're welcome to share your thoughts with us on this. Uh, it's a conversation uh, as you heard at the beginning. We're going to be having over the course of the coming months as a country, we're going to be asked to look at drug usage and indeed the laws that prohibit the use of drugs should it be decriminalised for personal use or should that just apply to cannabis or all drugs or should it be legalised or should we continue with the prohibition that's in place as I say we'd like to hear from you about this if you want to make comment our telephone number is as always 0419832000 that's 0419832000 you can text or WhatsApp a message to us on 08 1-800-658 and you can email michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show Podcast Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie that's a question um, that a lot of young people have been asked, uh, but one that I certainly am not qualified to answer. What is it like to be young in this country today? It's a question that's been put to people aged between 16 and 35 by the Youth Lab, Think House's Insights Strategy and Planning Division. It's launching its Irish edition of Youth Culture Uncovered. It's the sixth such publication. Claire Highland is the head of uh, the Youth Lab at Think House, a youth marketing agency, and on the line. A very good morning to you, Claire, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Tell us a, a little bit uh, about your research and indeed uh, what young people have been saying to you. Good morning, Michael. Uh, thanks for having me on board. Yeah, this is actually the, the sixth time that we've done this, and as you quite rightly stated there, we start off broadly in terms of what's it like to be young today as a young adult in Ireland. But each time we un- undertake our investigation, we put a nuanced lens on it. So this time we were exploring how young people are finding joy and purpose in a perma-crisis 
environment. So this idea of living through constant state of unpredictability, of uncertainty, and how does it map out then in terms of young people's attitudes, outlooks and behaviour. So I guess just to start with in terms of our core finding is that the behaviours of young people are contrasting and contradictory. So instead of young people all en masse showing up and behaving in a certain way, we saw a real polarity play out in terms of young people either leaning into life and deciding maybe to channel their energy in a particular way and focus in on the things that they can control and and through that actually create some joy or or meaning for themselves in their life or indeed um, surround themselves with community, with other Mm. like-minded people, find joy and purpose through that way. Or on the flip side, we saw this dynamic of just checking out um, and that was either quite conventional or, or radical, so radical in the sense of seeking out alternatives, so looking for a new, different, better way of doing whatever it, it might be. Or on the flip side of that then, I guess it's more a case of um, just completely checking out, going off grid, not able to cope with reality and looking to just escape whatever situation that they're in. Mm. So a real contradiction at play here in terms okay. of behaviours. You, you call that checking in, checking out uh, for young people who are living through this crisis, uh, as you call it. In other words, we're permanently in crisis, going from one crisis to another, whether that's war or COVID or climate change. Uh, but these are issues uh, that are of concern to young people too, of course. Yeah, and I guess no surprise in a way in terms of what their top issues are, but Certainly the cost of living crisis coming out in number one place. Um, And then following on from that, you have housing and health. Now, interestingly, the last time we did it, uh, like housing and health did come up first and second. So we didn't even have a cost of living crisis Mm. back then. Um, But for 16 to 25 year olds, housing more a concern, actually. And I think that plays out particularly in the student landscape of just access to housing, access to affordable accommodation. Mm. And that, of course, then really negatively impacting in terms of young people's mental health. So health up there and it was the same the last time in terms of it's a key concern in terms of trying to just manage the the uncertainty and and kind of cope with anxieties and and stress all right and uh, obviously housing is a crisis there's an emergency at the moment and has been for over a decade in this country a lot of young people don't believe they'll ever be able to afford their own home or get on the property ladder as the case may be 70% of the young people you spoke to say that that's their number one issue and I, I take it that to some degree at least that's feeding into the thinking of a, a lot of young people who believe they're going to have to move abroad yeah so we had we asked the question, like, do you see Ireland as the country that offers you the greatest chance for a happy life, the greatest chance for a successful life? Um, and again, and this is quite similar to the last time too, it was pretty much one or two saying that they didn't think Ireland was that place to offer them, you know, the greatest opportunity for happiness and success. And one and two saying that 
they felt they had no other choice but to go abroad. Now, I think it's worth pointing out that this is a feeling, this sense of like, I will have to go abroad. And of course, you know, young people see maybe friends, family, move to Australia, move to Canada or wherever. But it's still not actually playing out in the CSO data in terms of actual um, young people immigrating and leaving the country. But I think what is a major watch out is this sense of disillusionment, the sense of mm. kind of discontentment and lack of trust in in those in power. And in fact, only 15% of those we surveyed, and this was a nationally representative piece of research, 500 to 16 to 35 year olds, um, said that they, they could see uh, somebody like them in a leadership position in terms of government. Right. Only 16% saying, you know, that they, could, they trust the government to actually govern in their best interest. Oh, right. so I think yeah. that's the worrying thing in terms of young people just feeling like Ireland isn't a country that's actively taking care of them. Okay, they don't identify with the men in the grey suits, as the case may be, and they don't feel represented by the politicians. Uh, and I suppose going abroad is no bad thing. Uh, forced immigration is a different thing, and uh, that, uh, I suppose, brings you to that uh, political question about who is running the country. Uh, are are uh, the young people who are not satisfied with how the country has been run, who don't feel that they're represented by those who are in charge, are, are um, they inclined to vote? Uh, do they think that they can affect change in, in the way that they are represented? Yeah, I think as a generation, and particularly when you look to Gen Z, so I'm talking here about, say, 16 to 25-year-olds, they are the most socially conscious generation ever. So as as a as a cohort of our population, I think things that are really important to them are uh, inclusivity, this idea of equity as well. So a sense of of fairness. But I think they've lived through so much of their life feeling mm. somewhat excluded that they're, they're more likely to actually connect through a particular issue with um, community. So this sense of kind of surround yourself with like-minded people, control what you can control, you know, find alternatives, uh, come up with better solutions from the ground up. Um, I don't think it's yet really manifested in terms of how people are voting, but I think that that's something that um, we're going to see potentially play out in, in the coming years. But I think in terms of the choices that are on offer, it's not that we were hearing that everybody's going to suddenly move to another political party. It was almost like um, whatever the solution is just isn't there yet. Right. So it really mm. is a case of what's the space for what's to come. But mm. definitely that kind of community-led activism, community-led kind of local solutions or um, just ideas that can benefit, I guess, groups of people. That's what we're certainly identified. Okay, this is the TikTok generation, Claire. Yeah, so um, potentially for listeners, when you think of TikTok, it's it's identified as an entertainment platform or, you know, oh, my kids are always on it, would you get off it? But actually what we've seen and young people have said to us, it's not just about the entertainment factor, it's actually a discovery tool. So much like maybe uh, older generations would go to Google as the go-to search platform, we're actually seeing increasing numbers of Gen Z, so particularly 16 to 24-year-olds, so 81% of those we surveyed said they were on it and that they're using it to find out where to go, if they're planning a travel, a trip, they're looking on TikTok, they're getting personal recommendations of very much that peer-to-peer recommendation piece. Um, So using it, yeah, to have fun, to be entertained, but equally to just 
uh, get advice on what to do and how to live their life and how to have fun. Yeah, I can see a few people in here scratching their heads, uh, <laughs> wondering what TikTok is. Uh, but this is uh, the young generation uh, living in this country today, and uh, it's a good insight into who our young people are. Uh, you asked a, a very interesting question about the idea of purpose. Explain that to us. Yeah, so purpose really is around a sense of meaning in your life, which can be very much around the here and the now, or even a sense of kind of where you want your future uh, to to go. And I guess core to that is the people we surround ourselves. So what was, I think, surprising was just how um, important friendships uh, and family came through in terms of these being sources, not just of fun in terms of hanging out with your friend, but actually a real sense of, of meaning, that you get meaning through others. So surrounding yourself with people that you love, you care about, um, and then equally, I guess, work as well in terms of the role that work plays in terms of uh, an identity. So, you know, you see yourself through your your work and your work gives you purpose as well. Um, and, and that whole space of work is something that we're going to continue to track into the future because I think post-pandemic, you know, the idea of work has really changed. So particularly for a millennial, so a 25 to 35-year-old generation, many came into the workforce at the time of the last recession and it was all kind of a hustle mentality and you work, 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 you get whatever you can to just survive. And now we're seeing a lot of young people just question the role that work plays in their life and seeking out a more balanced approach in terms of like living your life work plays a role but you know I don't want to kind of invest necessarily my whole sense into that Mm -hmm. and I think even in the last few weeks when you see um, you know job layoffs and tech companies and people really almost feeling like they gave too much of themselves to their employer and kind of put too much of their sense of self into their work identity that we're going to see more young people striving for more balance and certainly flexibility as well. So that ability to kind of work where and when you want to. Okay, the age-old question, live to work or work to live. Fascinating stuff, Claire. We leave it there, though. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Claire Highland, head of the Youth Lab at Thinkhouse, a youth marketing agency. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Despite the appointment of Junior Minister Joe O'Brien, who is doing his best alongside Minister O'Gorman and his department, we are still seeing the locating of housing and and provision of resources for those fleeing war and hardship being done ad hoc by the government. Despite that change in December, there's still this ad hoc approach with insufficient communication for opposition parties or for local public representatives or communities offering solidarity. And I agree with Minister O'Gorman when he says that no level of consultation might change the views of some on housing refugees in their areas. But what is needed is a centralised approach from government to getting information out to local communities in a timely way when new accommodation is being opened to enable the provision of support to new new residents in their area. That's the leader of uh, the Labour Party, Ivana Bakic, speaking in the Dáil last week. Uh, Let's uh, speak to local TD for Louth and me, these Jed Nash, who's with us in uh, the studio this morning. Uh, What does your leader mean when she talks about a centralised approach? 
is it the SAR, the, uh, the coalition of groups that are, are working with immigrants into this country, have been calling for, for close to a year now? Yeah, I, I think it's actually, it, it, there's a number of different ways that you can view um, Ivana's comments the other day, and it's not the first time that we called for what we describe as a nefish style approach, bringing all of the agencies together to properly plan uh, for the provision of accommodation uh, for those who are coming uh, from Ukraine. So you'd have a Tony Houlihan, for example. Who uh, absolutely, but, but, but in this case, yeah. a minister. Um, the sufficient scope for the um, government to be able to appoint a range of ministers of state, for example, and, and Ivana rightly pointed out that they have appointed Mr. Mm. Joe Brown, giving him additional responsibilities for the general issue regarding um, refugees because we are in an emergency. But what we want is actually a specific minister responsible uh, and accountable to the doll, uh, accountable you know, to us mm. as TDs for the provision of all of the services that are required, especially accommodation. We're in a crisis now. We've been in a crisis for some time. This is unprecedented in terms of the challenge facing the country. Uh, and nobody can say uh, that this is a success. I mean, we're going to be 8,000 beds short very, very shortly because obviously the tourist season will be starting mm. in the middle or end of March uh, and there's no sense now that there is a coordinated response worst, from government. Worst it, case scenario, it's 19,000 uh, uh, from what I've been saying. That, that's, and, right. and, uh, that's as you say because of tourism. There's 14,000 people who are, are, are living in hotels and B&Bs uh, who are immigrants uh, in this country, asylum seekers or refugees as the case may be. Uh, but those contracts that the government has with the hotels are, are to run out in March. The Irish Times reported on Saturday that 30% have signed a new contract with the state 70% have not now that doesn't mean that they're not going to but that's not known and there is fear that they won't because they're worried about protests that's right we're we're a real cliff edge here there's also a situation as well that was reported on last week and I've dealing with cases myself uh, of um, service providers across this region who've actually yet to be paid um, for the provision of service that they've provided Mm. Uh, with, with goodwill and in good faith mm-hmm. uh, to, to assist in the national effort mm-hmm. to accommodate people who are fleeing war and persecution into this country. Uh, and so I think naturally enough, uh, you'd be thinking twice about renewing your contract mm-hmm. if your engagement with the department was, was far from positive. And in fact, you, you weren't being paid and weren't in a position mm-hmm. then maybe to, 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 to resource your own operation and look after your own staff. So there's a number of different mm-hmm. things I think that need to be addressed. But the only way doing that is in a coordinated way. It's extraordinary that we read last Friday, I think it was, in the front of the Irish Times or Saturday that the minister uh, with responsibility the senior minister Minister O'Gorman who is doing his best uh, only then uh, wrote to uh, or, uh, only in recent days wrote to his government colleagues asking them to uh, identify uh, you know buildings and so on in their ownership or um, any buildings place that, any place yeah. anywhere yeah. anywhere yeah. across the country uh, you know pr- pr- parish halls parochial yeah. halls if there's a roof sports clubs and so on yeah. and so forth mm. for the provision of camp mm. beds yeah. so you know we could have anticipated this mm. almost a year ago we're, we're almost a year into Putin's illegal war on yeah. Ukraine uh, and we're still mm. faffing around uh, operating at a piecemeal mm. basis uh, and this is creating all kinds of problems and it's creating confusion as well and some anxiety within communities yeah. too. But when you're talking about people without accommodation, if the accommodation runs out, we're talking about street sleepers. Uh, I mean at the moment we've a few hundred street sleepers in, in the country uh, and that's never really been a significant problem uh, despite there being 11,500 people who are in emergency accommodation sure. who are considered to be homeless, they're not street sleepers. When you're talking about 8,000 or 20,000 people sleeping on the streets in this country because there's nowhere for them to go, it just it's beyond belief. That's, that's a, a, an absolute worst case scenario and, and nobody, nobody with any 
piece of humanity in them would want to see that happen. At the moment, the last figures I saw over the weekend suggest that there is, I think, 61 people who have arrived in recent months who don't have any accommodation. Uh, that could get much more serious mm. very, very quickly over the next few weeks. The clock's ticking towards the end of March. There's no sense that there's this kind of united response. So people will remember, I mean, the, the, the CMO-type figure, or the CMO yeah. figure that we had, mm. Tony Hoolan, yeah. You know, speaking to the country, providing information, coordinating the effort at the mm. national level in terms of the response to daily COVID. updates, da- daily updates in mm. terms of information about the the no- numbers of people who are here, the numbers of people we expect mm. to be here, and by the way, as well, importantly, Michael, mm. uh, I think in terms of filling that vacuum, information about why people are coming to Ireland. Mm. I think it would be very useful if government would sit down and make a coordinated approach to providing information to people and say, this is what a refugee is. Mm. This is what an asylum seeker is. Typically, these are the kind of scenarios Mm. that they are fleeing. This is what people are entitled to in Ireland. Uh, This is where we hope they may be living for a short period of time. This is the period of time within which they would be allowed to work, so on and yep. so forth, to address that kind of misin- the kind of disinformation that we know is out there that is uh, fueling, have, fueling anxiety. Them. Yeah, we have to provide them with accommodation. That's, that's right. I mean, I think people need to understand the legal responsibilities that we have as a country, mm. as members of the international uh, community. And the level of support, Michael, differs um, between Ireland and elsewhere. Uh, we decide as a sovereign government, mm. uh, you know, this country decides what kind of supports within a framework. Yeah. Uh, of international law, you know, is provided to refugees and to uh, asylum seekers. Mm. And there's been... You there's know, the Refugee Convention, there's the Geneva right. Convention, there's a lot of international uh, agreements. And many of them going back to the Second World War. Yeah. And we know, have to, I mean, we don't have a choice. We have to provide accommodation for people seeking asylum here. They are legally here. Uh, every, you know, well over 100 countries that are signatories to these yeah. conventions are obliged under international law mm. as members of the international community mm. uh, to, uh, uh, to, to to accommodate uh, refugees and those who are seeking asylum for all the different mm-hmm. reasons that people um, that people seek asylum Two and, 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 and for their uh, applications then to mm. be processed if you're an asylum seeker. Two rallies under over the weekend uh, one with 500 people pro-immigration uh, and an anti-immigration rally. It's hard to believe that you'd be even having one let alone so many people attending a thousand people attended that uh, that was shocking wasn't it? It is worrying um, there's no doubt about that. Um, there are people who, you know, are simply anti-refugee. They always were. Um, they're the same people, by and large, this hardcore, who, for example, opposed marriage equality, opposed a woman's right to choose, uh, opposed women's rights more generally, um, opposed the opening up and the liberalisation and modernisation, if I can say that, of this country. Mm. Uh, there's a Deep intolerance, that's very, very Anti, worrying. Anti-vaxxers are... are uh, that is that Venn diagram, mm. you know. Uh, mm. People are anti-European Union, um, anti-5G. Mm. Uh, you, you I, I think they're probably anti uh, the uh, rising and the martyrs of this country <laughs> because they call the government traitors when those people, uh, our martyrs, our heroes, died to give us the democracy, the wonderful democratic country that we live in today. Absolutely, with, with all its failings. With all its failings. With all its failings, course, yeah. we, we are. Mm. And, and, and by the way, if you are concerned mm. about the failure of the state to provide mm. services as I am. Mm. Um, that is my whole raison d'etre for being in, yep. in, in in politics and public. It's why I put my name on a ballot paper. Then you know, don't blame refugees and asylum mm. seekers. Take your arguments to the government yep. and actually make your point through the ballot box yep. or indeed run Stand for election. election. Run yeah. for election. Yeah. Yeah. Run for election yourself. And don't and, abuse as, my flag. Please as don't as abuse I, my Because the, the, the tricolour is being used as a symbol of hate. Well, it has. It has. And uh, we are a republic. Uh, and uh, the essence of a republic, Michael, is for the country to be open, tolerant, 
welcoming, uh, secular, uh, liberal, um, democratic, uh, and where we celebrate difference. We celebrate difference and we embrace difference in, in a republic. And when I talk about difference, I think there's a, a, an obligation here in government, and indeed everybody in public life, to be careful with the information and the language, uh, the, the language they use and the information that is provided. And government could do, I think, a very good job uh, 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 with and for us to provide important information to people about, as I discussed, what is a refugee? What is an asylum seeker? Mm. There's people who we will never convince, mm. uh, and it's that hardcore, many of whom would have been protesting on the streets uh, of, of Dublin uh, uh, this, this week and will be protesting uh, elsewhere around the country mm. inevitably over the next uh, period of time. But I would say this, that's a, that's a, very, that's a small hardcore mm. of people. There are some people uh, in the middle of this who, who need information, who are maybe a little concerned, a little anxious of for course. what it is they yep. they read. Mm. Um, I would ask people to you know have a healthy dose of scepticism mm. in terms of what they read. This is why government needs to be very clear with information. Is why we need to be clear okay. as public representatives about, about, about what all of this involves and to have a sense of perspective here. Mm. Okay, thanks for that, uh, Jed Nash. Uh, while you're here, uh, can I ask you about the sheep and the boyne? Uh, Independent councillor Kevin Callan uh, has brought this uh, to our attention. It really, is shocking to see it. Yeah, it is. I witnessed this myself a few days ago, and uh, I, I, I made a report, um, you know, to to an organisation which would have an interest in, in matters like this. Um, we don't know what happened here. I'm not sure if this is the same uh, sheep. Uh, it was further upstream when I saw it a few days ago. It may have been washed down. If it's a case that there are a number of sheep uh, in the boyne, then I think there really needs to be an investigation because there are clear animal welfare issues in the first instance, uh, but also as well there are issues of public concern in relation to compu- uh, uh, pollution and, and, and safety, health and safety. So one of the reasons, for example, why and now our bill predates this, uh, myself and Councillor Lane McGinty developed a piece of legislation to make sure that all of the organisations responsible for the management of the Boyne and the Boyne catchment area would come together actually to develop a task force to make sure that biodiversity in the Boyne is protected and improved, that pollution is properly monitored and controlled and that we start embracing and valuing our river uh, again. Um, it is a dreadful, uh, this is a dreadful situation. I, I, I saw a carcass Last week, as I say, it, it was reported. Uh, Councillor Callan would have done the same. He, he may have seen that over the last couple of days. I don't know if it's a, an isolated incident, whether it's one carcass or whether uh, or not there, there are others, but this needs to be investigated. OK, thank you indeed for coming into us today. That's Labour Party TD for Loud and Me East, Jed Nash. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Now, there's nearly 4,000 families in uh, this country who have a a child with a life-limiting illness. This is according to an academic review which was commissioned uh, by Cleonis Foundation. It's called Too Dear to Visit and highlights uh, the cost that is associated with having a very sick person in the house. Let's speak to Brendan Ring, who is the CEO and co-founder of Cleonis Foundation. Very good morning to you, Brendan. Thank you for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You know... Uh, better than anybody what it's like to have a sick person in the house indeed uh, you lost your little girl Cleona in 2006 hello Brendan no. 
I don't think we've uh, Brendan on the line. We'll uh, try to uh, reconnect uh, with that telephone. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Sean is in Drogheda, and he's been on the phone to us uh, about making drugs legal. He says, if this happens, it, it, is it not rolling out the red carpet for the drug barons? And where are people going to purchase the drugs? I think this is a free-for-all as it will, it will not stop the drug problems in the country. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Sean. I think uh, what the Fianna Fáil TDs are saying is to decriminalise it. So if you're found with a small amount of drugs as yet to be defined, uh, you won't uh, be charged or go to prison or any of that sort of uh, judicial approach to it. Uh, but you'll be sent on your way. Uh, perhaps you'll be given some information about where you can get treatment uh, and the drugs will be taken off you. Mike was in touch with us as well. Mike says uh, if anyone is suffering from MS and there are chemicals available there to ease uh, the pain, uh, they shouldn't have to suffer. They should have these drugs available to them uh, by choice uh, and exempt uh, from uh, the laws that are existing at the moment. Thank you as well, Mike, for that. Now, I think we have Brendan Ring uh, back on the line. Brendan is the CEO and co-founder of Cleonis Foundation, uh, as we mentioned earlier on. Uh, this is a group that's hoping to help some 4,000 families in the country who have a child with a life-limiting illness. Brendan, good morning to you, and thanks uh, for coming back to us there on the line. Uh, I was uh, just about to ask you uh, about Cleona. Um, you know better than anybody else uh, what it's like to have a very sick person in the house. You lost your little girl back in 2000. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose um, that's when we saw the issue that we're going to talk about in a while um, raise its head for us as a family. Um, Kina was diagnosed when she was seven with an inoperable brain tumour. And um, she died uh, almost eight years later, just before her 16th birthday, and um, from that brain tumour. But um, it was the journey that we went on with Kina um, during several treatments, um, we, we, we come from County Limerick, so we spent the first year and a half after her, her diagnosis uh, trucking our way up and down to Crumlin. Um, she had many surgeries in Cork, where eventually she ended up in a coma for five months of her life at, at the end of her life. And in between that, there was numerous appointments and blood transfusions and everything that goes with this awful disease. So... Mm. It's that's why we have the foundation because we met so many families on that journey with us that we just were devastated in relation to being able to take care of the non-medical expenses that we incurred during that journey. And it's the cost of the non-medical expenses that you've been helping people with since you established in 2008. That's correct. Um, Kleena passed away in 2006, and we never intentionally set up the charity. Um, we did have one um, kind of fundraising night for Kleena, and we decided then, having met these families, we said, look, let's give this money away to families that need it, you know, that are travelling the countrywide, uh, particularly, you know, going to Crumlin and Temple Street, places like that. So that, um, and it's never stopped since. We, we, we just keep getting applications and Last year, I mean, it's bittersweet. We we helped over 160 families. We we funded, I think, uh, over 400,000 to these families just to help them with those non-medical expenses in relation to, you know, putting fuel in cars, you know, staying overnight in accommodation, car parking is a big issue, and just the, ge- the general subsistence allowances that families need while they're looking after a child with, with a life-limiting or serious illness. Mm, and a lot of care is necessary. 
that isn't available to you by way of supports and as a result of that people give up work uh, to stay at home to look after children? Yeah, and again, in our case, uh, my wife Terry um, gave up her work uh, once Kina was diagnosed and she had to kind of dedicate the next seven or eight years to Kina. Um, I was in a self-employed position at that time and still am. So to, in fairness, Terry did a lot of that trucking as well and, and I would at the important times of Kina's life. Mm. And like when the salary is taken away from your household income and you have to rely on one, well, the bills still keep coming in, Michael, you know, um, your mortgage, your, 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 your payments of your car, your, your household bills. And we are ending up as a, a relatively small organisation trying to help these families with these kind of costs as well. Okay, well, uh, you've just launched your strategic plan for the next uh, three years. Uh, you had certainly a very busy year last year, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, you raised over €400,000 uh, to help families. Uh, you're hoping to increase that uh, this year to half uh, a million. Yeah, the applications even we've seen from the first month of January, we, we issue checks every month. Um, is that it looks like the, the, the directory is going to be somewhere around 200 families. So as a minimum, we need to raise a half a million euros. And look, we're really looking for government support here because um, the, even though we give substantial amount of money to the families, it's not enough. And we, we are calling on the government to try and support cleaners or d- themselves directly to support the families that we look after with these non-medical expenses. And, you know, we know for, for a fact from research that we've done that it costs uh, annually between ten and twelve thousand euros to look after a child that's got a life limiting or serious illness. So we are falling we're falling short of that, so we're asking the government to help us to to, to um, bridge the gap. Okay. Your website is cleanus.ie. You're on all of uh, the social media sites as well. If people do want uh, to help and uh, assist you directly, uh, I'm sure that uh, you'd be very happy uh, if uh, they wanted to do that. But uh, we leave there for the moment, Brendan. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Now, as things stand... Uh, We're looking at over 5,000 people who have been killed in this massive earthquake in uh, Turkey and in Syria. The BBC is reporting at the moment that in northern Syria, people have been trapped beneath the rubble and they're calling out for help. But there's almost no one to respond to those calls. Let's uh, speak to Danny Smiths of UNICEF. A very good morning to you, Danny, and uh, thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. how does this earthquake compare uh, to other earthquakes? Uh, I mean, it seems to be a massive uh, incident. Absolutely, Michael. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, um, the earthquake really really is very, very significant uh, for the area. Um, it's not something that's been seen um, for, for a, 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 a good number of years. Um, and the devastation that is leaving across Turkey and particularly um uh, northwestern Syria is is absolutely devastating. Um, but sadly, as you're saying, the the full picture, uh, you know, I don't think we still have the full picture. Um, we've we've heard reports, like you said, that there's there's thousands of buildings that have collapsed, um, and this could be affecting some of the most remote areas of of northwest Syria. And um, Syria, in particular, has had uh, immense challenges over the last number of years, obviously with the with the conflict there, um, and that's left the children and families. Um, very, very vulnerable to, to things like this. So it's, it's um, really compounding existing issues that we're seeing across the region. Okay. Uh, that figure of 5,000 uh, is undoubtedly going to increase substantially. Uh, and there's so much done uh, that, that will need to be done. Uh, and uh, UNICEF uh, uh, is on the ground in Syria as we speak. 
Yeah, absolutely. So our teams are there um, assessing, you know, what needs to be done in an emergency like this. Really the, 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 the most critical aspect is, is speed. You know, you need to get your teams in as fast as you can. Um, you need to assess what supports are needed. That could be, you know, whether it's fixing water stations to ensure that people have critical supplies, um, you know, assessing the situation faced by children. Already in Syria, for example, over 3 million children are, are living displaced. So they've been forced to flee their homes due to fighting or, or conflict over the last number of years. Um, so it's, our teams are particularly focused. Can we get in? Can we assess what their needs are? And then, you know, if they need food, if they need water, then you follow on with, with those kind of, or, or medical mm. supplies, you follow on with those emergency and you try to stop disease from spreading then as well because uh, that's uh, one of the considerations uh, when sanitary um, is a challenge to say the least yeah very much so so there's going to be a number of challenges that that children are facing uh, exactly as you said uh, in terms of hygiene and and sanitation that'll be a critical element making sure that that we can get the infrastructure um, rudimentary as it actually as it may be in some parts we can get that back going and um, also the cold is a huge factor at the moment we don't associate turkey or or, or syria with, with freezing temperatures but in winter the temperatures can plummet um, and that can mean now you might have children who are tragically either trapped in the rubble and um, who are experiencing the temperatures or children and families who might have lost their homes who are now exposed to the cold um, and and you know they need both of those groups need kind of a immediate immediate support to ensure that that they're not affected by by you know that we're, we're seeing snowstorms we're seeing absolutely freezing temperatures so it's very very challenging situation okay. across the across the region okay and you're with us of course Danny to appeal to people to help UNICEF uh, to do some of uh, this very urgent work that needs to be done Yes, yes. So uh, only only this morning we launched our, our emergency appeal for particularly for, for the children and families uh, in Syria because, as I said, they are among the most vulnerable um, communities in the world. Um, even before this crisis, uh, two-thirds of the entire population of Syria needed humanitarian assistance. Thankfully, within Turkey, the resources are, are, more, are, are, are more strengthened. Mm. So our response is, is particularly for the children and families mm. in Syria, um, we've seen over the last number of years the incredible support that people across Ireland have given to the people of Syria um, and you know, we're, uh, we're calling for any support people could give if they could go to uh, unicef.ie and um, you know every little counts in terms of uh, at, a res- at, a, at a time like this in terms yeah. of our response. It's really disturbing that headline isn't it? Uh, I mean what's happened overnight uh, is beyond belief and so many people who have lost their life and uh, that figure of 5,000 is undoubtedly going to soar uh, way past that figure but it really is a disturbing headline that people are trapped under rubble and uh, they're crying out in pain for help but there's nobody to help them. All right, Danny, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, Danny Smith, who is uh, the communications manager with UNICEF. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 
Brian, I speak uh, to a journalist uh, from Drogheda, well known obviously around these parts and indeed well known to many of uh, the people listening uh, to us uh, this morning after sitting in this chair on a, a number of occasions. Alison O'Reilly, a very good morning to you. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning and most importantly, deepest condolences to you and your family on the loss of your father. Thanks very much, Michael. Um, delighted to be on. My, As you know, my, my dad... Patrick O'Reilly, or Paddy, as he was known to, to all his friends and family, was a very, very proud Drogheda man. Absolutely loved the town. And um, he'd be listening to me now if he was at home, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he always tuned in. And um, I worked, you know, in, in all over England and Ireland and had travelled quite a bit myself. But he was never more proud of me um, presenting and filling in for you on LMFM. I, I still remember the day I went home to see him after doing it and he was waiting for me in the driveway and he was so proud. Mm, OK. Well, um, he, he obviously uh, taught an awful lot of, of you anyway, Alison. Um, but uh, you're, you're not here necessarily uh, to tell us that you lost your father, which is, is hard, uh, I think, for any of us to have to contend with. Uh, but your father was a patient in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. And yeah. you're, not, you're not happy with the treatment. No, no. I mean, uh, for years, Dad would have been linked in with the hospital because he had a, a bad heart and he'd suffered a heart attack in his late 50s. And he'd be telling everybody that, you know, and he was in and out of the hospital. So the treatment he got over the years and being in the system was, was actually quite good. Mm. And I'm very thankful to, to Dr. Keelan and a lot of the staff there. But when it, when it came to his his last day, I suppose... You know, I, I, I wanted to speak out for other people who um, may not have been as fortunate as us, but Dad sadly passed away on the 20th of December in the Lord's Hospital and he was on the sixth floor. Um, he had presented, obviously, with breathing problems and his heart was very weak. Um, and on Tuesday, the 20th of December, he developed pneumonia and he just declined rapidly. And, you know, I went in to see him there with my family and everybody was in a state of shock and he just was so ill. Um, but he was in very cramped and crowded conditions. Um, and a lot of people would be familiar with the sixth floor and the hospital in general. And uh, I suppose, you know, it was very undignified. It was very disappointing. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
it was quite stressful. You couldn't sit in beside him. I knew that he was uncomfortable. I knew that um, while he couldn't talk, um, it was embarrassing for him to be in those in that situation. And um, you know, we were we were brought away by the doctor and unfortunately told that my dad was coming to the end of his life. And the doctor had spoken to my mom and my sister and myself and she said, you know, um, it's going to be quite quick and, you know, um, we'll get him on morphine and have you any questions? And I said, yes, can he have his own room, please? And she said, well, any other time of year, you know, I might be able to do that for you, but not now. It's Christmas and we're very overcrowded. And I, I said, no, sorry, no, no, sorry, I'm not, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, my dad needs his own room. And I, you know, I made it very clear to the doctor, I'm not speaking to you personally, I'm speaking to you, the hospital. Um, but her answer was, no, I don't think so. I, I think, you know, that it's, it's, it's not really possible. Um, we're very crammed, we're overcrowded. And I, I was like, look, you've just told us my father's about to pass away. And he's in there in very crammed conditions with loads of people around, maybe another five patients all very sick. He knows he's not well and other people know he's not well and it's very undignified and your policy is dignity for patients. And again, she said, no, I don't think it's possible. And I said, he's not dying in there. Like, he's just not dying in there. My father worked all his life and paid his taxes. Michael, he had two jobs and he never claimed social welfare. And that's no disrespect to people who've been forced to claim social welfare. But Dad never claimed social welfare and had two jobs and worked from about 16 or 17 up until he was 68. I said, now, that's what I need to do for my dad. So she said, the other, <clears throat> the other alternative is to bring him home in an ambulance and he dies on the way. And I thought, well, I prefer that. I would actually prefer that than this. Right. It was so, so crammed. And he knew, and we knew, and it's just appalling, and you're so helpless in those circumstances. Mm. And my family were shocked and saddened, and, you know, I knew myself that I had to speak up. So, you know, I kept thinking it would be so cold to put my dad now into an ambulance and a trolley, and I was thinking, God, you know, please. But I was so angry that I raised my voice at her, and I said, your hospital's a disgrace. And, um, you know, I said, look, I know it's not your fault. And she said, well, it is my fault. It's my job to advocate. And you're right, the conditions are not good enough. But, you know, that's all I can offer you. And I said, no, he has to get his own room. Mm. Like, he cannot die in there like that. Um, and it was my last request for my dad. And I stormed out of the hospital. And I was happy, Michael, to go home that night and knock him back and just try and remember my dad the way he was, a happy-go-lucky, <clears throat> so friendly. But, you know, my two boys were like, Mom, we have to go back, Granddad's dying. And I went back in, and thankfully, thankfully, Michael, he did get his room to pass with dignity and peace with his wife, children, and grandchildren around him. And it was a really, really peaceful passing. My poor father, you know, but I just thought, you know, it wasn't good enough, Michael. It wasn't good enough, you know. And what about people who are in those circumstances? I think up to three people on that ward died that night. Um, someone had died before him. After he passed, <clears throat> I sat with him, you know, until the early hours. And then the room was required for somebody else who passed. But what if he hadn't have got that room? And, you know, the bit of dignity and where are we going with that Lord's yeah. Hospital and, and the conditions there and like it was filthy the hospital was filthy the toilets were filthy 
I just don't understand that. I understand overcrowding at times. I understand the challenges they face. And it's no disrespect to the mm. staff there. But I don't understand why the hospital's dirty. Why is the hospital dirty? Mm. Um, you know, and I want to... You, you're talking about the toilets specifically there, the are you? The toilets yeah. were filthy, yeah. yeah the toilets yeah. were filthy. Yeah. But I mean, we had a friend who died in, in July 2017. Um, and I highlighted it in the national papers at the time. You know, that she hadn't been washed and because she had argued with the hospital, I don't want to be washed. They just left her sitting there filthy. Um, and it's just not good enough. It's not good enough. Dignity mm. is so important. It's, it's, a, it's the hospital's policy. Dignity and for patients, dignity mm. in death. Not to distract from anything you're saying, uh, but mm. there's the other patients on the ward uh, and what consideration is given to them. If you're saying that there were sick people in hospital beds in a ward where three people died in the one night. Uh, that sounds very far from satisfactory. I'm sure that was very disturbing for those people. I mean, none of I us... I think la- it might have been three on the ward, the small okay. ward on the six, but definitely, definitely there was a man facing my dad, mm. watching him die, watching us in distress. When yeah. we were huddled in a corner and spilling out into the corridor, yeah. um, well, you know, with the curtain around him, and I knew my dad knew. Yeah. It was it was awful to watch. It was awful to watch, and I just feel uh, and awful very for lucky. strangers. I mean, the other patients would be strangers to your father, uh, and dreadful for them to watch it uh, and to experience that. None of us like death, uh, uh, and you, yeah. uh, you. I mean, you know, it's bad enough when it's somebody you know and love and all of that, but very mm. difficult situation for those. And then afterwards, of course, the undertakers will have to come in, and it's uh, just hard to believe that that would be the case. Yeah, and I was in hospital myself a few years ago and I saw that happen. I saw that happen. Mm. Um, uh, the remains of somebody being taken away and it's just awful to watch mm. and it, it's not good from anyone's perspective, mm. uh, particularly the family who are trying to come to terms with the fact that my dad was going to pass mm. and it was horrific to watch. Um, but I, I do feel only because, you know, I let a roar at them, really, to be yeah. frank, Um that I, I, the quiet priest never got his parish, Michael, you know. Mm. And I suppose, you know, I was able to speak up. And had my dad lived, he would have dined out on that for years. You know, he would have been going around telling everybody, you want to hear the other one? She let a roar at them and she got her way. But it was the last thing I could do for my dad in terms of speaking up for him. But what about people who, who don't have that yeah. voice mm. and are afraid to speak up? It's not good enough. Okay. You know, it's just not good enough. Did, did you complain to the hospital? I haven't yet because I'm still kind of in shock and I've been coming to terms, but I have drafted a letter and I will be sending it today. Um, it just, I don't want it to happen anyone else. It, that, that's what it's really about. Mm. I don't want it to happen to other people. It's not nice. Mm. And we were lucky, but we may not have been lucky to to have my dad have that nice room at the end of his life where we could say goodbye in peace mm. and dignity. But absolutely, there's a letter drafted and it's going today. All right, well, he he was lucky to have uh, such a a strong daughter to advocate on his behalf uh, and uh, I'm sure you did it in proud. Dreadful time uh, for you oh, and yeah. for your, your mother and the whole family, I'm sure, Alison. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Like, and, you know, Todd, as I said, a very proud Drogheda man and and uh, he'd be the first to speak up now had he lived through that uh, to say, you know, that's the way to do it is to speak up um, but not everybody's able to do that and you know I suppose um, 
I just wanted to say a few words about my dad as well, Michael, if that's okay. Yeah, do you have time for me course, just to... Of course I do. You know, yeah, yeah. Dad, dad was, was 80, so he lived for, for a great age, you know, and he was from Singleton Cottages in Mel. And um, his parents were uh, Catherine Gorman and Patrick O'Reilly. She was known as Kitty. Now, I never knew my grandparents because they died quite young. Um, and Dad grew up there and... Um, he had a, a sister, Jean, who died when she was eight of pneumonia and a brother, Philip, who died when he was 14 of a brain tumour. So he, dad had obviously suffered a lot of loss in a young age. And as you know, you know, your childhood stays with you forever. And only for my dad spoke about uh, the family members that he lost. We wouldn't have known about them because he kept their memories alive. And I was always very grateful to him that he included us in his family's life, even though they had passed on. Um, and he was very close to his, his brother, Jack, who was um, a postman in Drogheda. A lot of people would know Jack. He married Ursula and his one daughter, Kira, And Harry, his brother, Harry, would have been close to Dan O'Connell, the postmaster in, in West Street as well. And his brother, Liam, he's very close to his brother's and um, he worked in Peter Lines um, on Stockwell Street. A lot of people would know there. And he trained as a mechanic. His, his father was a, a confectioner there. And dad worked with Jack Hannon and Desi Walker there. And spent most of his life in, in, in uh, Peter Lines. But when unfortunately, when it closed down, a lot of people had lost their jobs. But dad was very lucky that he moved to a subsidiary of, of Johnson, Mooney and O'Brien and in Ready Bacon, Clonney, and spent the rest of his life working there and travelling up and down. And, um, you know, he, he worked so hard. I don't know anybody who worked as hard as my father. And he lived a very, very simple life, you know. He was married to my mum for oh, well over 50 years. I mean, they got married in 1968. A mum's from RD, and he was very close to her siblings as well. Mum has 12 siblings and her mother, May Jenkins. He would have been really close to them. And everything was so simple in Dad's life. Get up, go to work, walk the dog, you know, um, they ended up moving out to, to Monaster Boyce and he absolutely loved Drogheda United. He loved Liverpool. I mean, I, I, I still remember to, to this day going to the 2005 FAI Cup final in Lansdowne Road when Drogheda United won the league and I was there and Dad was there with my brother and I remember meeting him on the road crying outside and I and he just said I followed this team since I was a little boy and when they had nothing they didn't even have a proper pitch mm. and when they won that league he was so proud and the same year obviously Liverpool won the Champions League in Istanbul so he was really proud and he got to see the, the, the World Cup and Messi you know, uh, bring his team to the final. And um, he was delighted about that, you know. But even when he was passing, he was thinking of other people and, and talking to me about Private Sean Rooney, who was tragically mm. killed in Lebanon. So he always thought about other people and didn't like to see young people pass young. He hated that, but he very, very much loved his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and um, lo absolutely loved Drada and... Mm. You know, I suppose in, in one way, Michael, <clears throat> we weren't robbed, you know, dad lived till he was 80 and he was in ill health, although we always had the best side out and maybe the best side out is not always good for you because, you know, you're avoiding the, the tough things, which can probably accelerate the bad things. Mm. But he would have been part of that generation, you know, where he said the past is in the past, forget about it, move on. In another way, yeah. he didn't move on because he always remembered 
the people that he lost in his life. But uh, he was everybody's friend, a really, really nice man, bit of a scat bag, very forgetful, yeah. always laughed to leave the house. Yeah. But, okay. but great crack, great crack, and very, very proud good. of him. Yeah, lovely tribute, Alison. Thanks. Yeah, I'm very proud of him. Yeah, no, obviously so. Thank you uh, for telling us uh, about your dad, uh, more importantly, uh, and uh, the concerns you had uh, about his final hours as well. Thank you. That's a well-known local journalist, Alison O'Reilly. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now: michael at lmfm.ie. Now, if uh, you have been on social media and noticed the hashtag relationship questions, you're probably aware of a campaign that is reaching out to young women in particular to look at uh, the relationships uh, that they're in with their boyfriend, their partner or their husband, as uh, the case may be, and ask questions about that relationship. Is it a healthy relationship? More to the point, Neve O'Connor is the outreach worker with Mead Women's Refuge and Support Services. Neve. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, and you're specifically targeting young women with this campaign. Yes, exactly, Michael. Thanks so much for having us on. Um, yeah, so we have an online campaign, like you said, for young women. We're really focusing on kind of 18 to 30-year-olds um, and just kind of on their relationships. If they have boyfriends or partners or in a dating relationship and if they have some concerns or questions about their relationship, um, it's, it's really focusing on that because emotional abuse is um, the most common form of abuse for young people and we want to raise awareness of this for young women to help them learn more about it and kind of what's okay and what's not okay. Okay, what should women be looking out for? Yeah, so I suppose emotional abuse can be hard to identify, so I kind of give you some examples there. So, for example, like if their um, partner or boyfriend, if he demands to look through their phone to see what, who they're talking to, or if he monitors their social media and email accounts, things like if he threatens to harm himself or you if, if you leave or puts you down and constantly criticises you, things like your parenting or your job or your intelligence. Um, but it's also about the, emo- the impact on you um, as a p- the partner or the person in the relationship. So if you find yourself kind questioning your own behaviours, what you say, how you approach um, your partner or boyfriend or how you behave around them because you're concerned about their reaction, that all might be signs that emotional abuse is happening. Mm. Um, You don't generally see women under the age of 30 come to you for help, do you? Yeah, exactly. The majority of the women that come to us for help are over the age of 30 and that's really why this campaign is so important. It's because we know that early intervention works um, and we would really like to help young women um, to support them to recognise the abuse and that controlling behaviour so that it, it, we can prevent them and support them from any further or ongoing abuse into the future. Because, um, yeah, we know that early intervention happens and it's really focused around that prevention because mm. um, we know that the abuse kind of continues on into the future. So if we can get that earlier um, and support women earlier, then we can help protect them more. And what should women do? Uh, I mean, if they identify something that is worrying, uh, if he's looking at her phone or telling her what to wear or whatever, uh, they feel uncomfortable with, uh, should they just leave him or what's the advice? I suppose there's loads of options available out there um, and it's really dependent on the person's experience and their needs. So that could look like things like online protection, physical or social or, or even legal. Um, but we'd recommend any woman who is um, thinking that they might be experiencing this type of abuse to reach out um, and to 
they can always call our helpline or our outreach team are always available to chat to them over the phone or to meet them for a coffee coffee to kind of explore those options with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can always give us a call on our helpline, which is 046 or they can visit our website. And you can also find us on social media, um, on Instagram and Facebook, mm-hmm. at Mead Women's Refuge and Support Services. And there's lots of more information there. So it doesn't always have to be to leave. There's lots of other options available there and they can always reach out and discuss with us what they might look like. All right. Uh, we'll repeat that number again in a moment. And it's a, a 24-hour number, of course, Neve. It uh, is 24-7. People can ring day or, or night. Uh, and you, you might go for a coffee with someone to talk through what they're experiencing. Uh, I asked your colleague up in um, Dundalk not so long ago, um, mm-hmm. would somebody not feel stupid? Um, or would they be stupid if they rang you and said, uh, he's looking at my phone? Uh, I mean, a lot of people seem to think that domestic violence is uh, what it sounds like, that it's physical violence. But obviously that's not the case. No, not at all. And like any woman can ring up, even if they're unsure. And we do get a lot of people who might ring up and say, they're, you know, they're not sure. They might feel a little silly asking these questions. But it's always important to ask those questions. Mm. If you have that feeling that something isn't right or you're concerned or worried about um, your position in your relationship, it's always worth reaching out and having that conversation mm-hmm. um, and looking at options available. So it's things like digital abuse um, is is huge at the moment and it's another way that people can be contacted and monitored and controlled mm. um, so it's important that if anyone has those concerns or thinks um, about these these questions that they reach out and even have a conversation and, and that's to the, see if it's okay or not and That's the key word isn't it? Control it's about mm-hmm. somebody else making decisions for you uh, and you having to be obedient as such yeah, you're being controlled and doing something that you wouldn't have done unless you were told to do it uh, and there is nothing too small. If a woman senses that in what seems irrelevant uh, compared to somebody uh, getting beaten to a pulp, uh, it's still not stupid, though. Oh, God, no. It's all about the, that impact on you. So if you bring it back to, um, if you're questioning or behaving any different or questioning or thinking of overthinking about what you say or how you approach that person because you're worried about how they're going to react, mm. and based a lot of your behaviours around how that person might react well then that's that control it's not necessarily someone telling you exactly what to do Mm. it's you changing your behaviour to suit someone else because you have that underlying fear of them Um, so if anyone feels in that way that can be related to any form of abuse as well if they're feeling that way um, it's always important to kind of reach out for that help or even for a conversation Mm. and we can meet anyone based on, on where they're at or what suits them or is comfortable for them and, and what they think would be the best option for All them. Right. And, and, and would women feel embarrassed uh, about contacting you uh, about something like that? Uh, is there a stigma attached to making contact oh, yeah. with? Yeah, yeah but there mm. definitely is mm. and there is that out in the community that you know people feel like it has to be at extreme level or you have to be you know married and long term but it can really be in those um, early dating relationships mm-hmm. if you're seeing someone um, even if you've broken up with someone and they're still trying to contact you or, or have that influence on you um, it can happen in any of those relationships so um, you know our helpline and our service is completely confidential people can stay anonymous if they'd like um, so yeah it's, it's really important just to mm-hmm. reach out and ask those questions if they have any concerns and um, you know, it can be worrying yeah. and daunting but we're here to listen and support them You know, Very good yeah because uh, I think um, there's a lot of people uh, who uh, would experience this type of behaviour early in the relationship mm-hmm. and as time goes on, 
because they didn't act on what was a telltale sign uh, or an indication of something to come, the relationship deteriorates uh, and it mm-hmm. can become violent. Yeah, exactly. Because emotional abuse is the most common form of abuse for young people and then that can escalate over time, especially if you're in a vulnerable position. So say, mm-hmm. for example, if you were pregnant or you moved away to a new area from friends and family or you became financially dependent on that person, things can escalate a lot more then um, and then into other forms of violence as well. Um, that would be concerning. Yeah, and, and I, I guess uh, uh, a lot of women will have heard that everybody does this. There's nothing wrong with this. Uh, and they'd have heard that argument. Or they might even be hearing something similar from their friends saying, yeah, my fellow does that or whatever. Yeah, and that's you know why our campaign is so important mm-hmm. as well online. Like Those kind of things are very concerning, especially when you see in social media and the influence of it um, kind of normalising maybe some of these behaviours. Um, so it's really important that we also have that kind of online presence and, and have this type of campaign so that um, women can learn that these things are not okay um, and what what is okay and what's not and where they can get help for that as well. All right, well, Mead Women's Refuge, uh, as you say, is online. You have your website, dvservicemead.ie. You're on all of the social media platforms and you have that 24-hour helpline, which is 046 That's 046 393 uh, and that's a, a, a number that you can call 24 hours a day if people do want to speak to somebody. Neve, thank you indeed uh, for joining us to talk about hashtag relationship questions, which people may have noticed online at this stage. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie. Time now, as is usual around this time, on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. We're joined for the report this week by Garda Kate Patterson of the Community Policing Unit in Dundalk, Garda Station. And good morning and thank you for joining us on the programme today. We're going to begin this week's report with the discovery of some items that you'd like to return to the rightful owners. Last week, sometime last week, the Garda and Navin were on patrol in the Dublin Road area at the junction with Springfield Glen, when they came across a number of items that they would really like to get back to their owners. Now, some of the items retrieved include a silver cross on a chain, a black leather wallet, and an amount of small change in a foreign currency. So if you believe that these items may belong to you, or you think you can assist in getting them back to the rightful owner, we would request that you please contact Navin Garda Station. The number for Navin is 46 9079930. Okay, we're going back a, a little more than a, a week ago to Saturday, the 28th of January. Guardian appealing for information about a road traffic collision. That's right, Michael. So it's the Guardian Dunshockland are dealing with this. Um, they're appealing for any witnesses following a collision outside West Began National School at 5 a.m., so the early hours of Saturday, the 28th of January. A cyclist was struck by a vehicle which failed to stop as they cycled in the direction of Dublin from Rathbegan and the incident took place just opposite the National School in the village. The cyclist was taken to hospital and treated for injuries and thankfully those injuries weren't life-threatening. So Gary now are seeking witnesses and or anybody who may have dash cam footage. We would in particular like to speak to anyone who may have been travelling in the Rathbegan area 
in the early hours of Saturday, the 28th of January. So as you say, not last Saturday, but the previous Saturday. And between 4.30am and 5.30am in the morning. So there probably wouldn't have been a lot of vehicular traffic on the road at the time. Anyone who can assist the investigation can contact on Shockland. The number there is 01-825-8600. Or as always, if anybody has any information they'd like to share with us, they can contact the Garda Confidential Line. 1800-666-1 is the number for the Garda Confidential Line. Okay, some important community alert news and a community and text alert scheme being put in place locally. Yes, Michael. So in Dramad Garda Station, County Loud, and the Garda there are present, working with the community, the local community, to try and restart the community alert and the text alert schemes. And they're currently appealing for new members. So AGMs are being planned for February for the Ravensdale and the Rock Marshall Jenkinstown Lordship areas. And Garda would like as many local people as possible to become involved. So a, a Garda Community Alert Scheme is a community safety programme for rural areas with an emphasis on older and more vulnerable members of society. Um, it's run in partnership with Minchinatira. Whereas the Garda Text Alert Scheme, it enables communities to set up a group um, and in this group, they can receive alerts of suspicious or criminal activity um, and by sending this information by text. Um, and it enables the information to be disseminated really rapidly to a large number of people in the area in a very cost-effective manner. Um, Garda Murray in Dramad is looking after this and she's requested that anybody who's interested um, or interested in joining or participating in the schemes contact her in Dramad and the number for Dramad Garda Station is 042-935-8660. If you can't get through to Dramad, you can always contact on Dark Garda Station and they'll take a message. Very good. Always good to see the community coming together, looking out for each other like that. Now, today is Safer Internet Day. Uh, I imagine a lot of people are aware of that and the shocking statistics from the CyberSafe kids this morning to coincide with that with over one in five children. This is between the ages of eight and 12 saying that they've seen something online in the course of the last year that they wouldn't want their parents to know about. And it seems that most children in that age group are online. Just 3% say they're never allowed to go online. But there's a lot for us to think about on this day and I suppose uh, marking it as Safer Internet Day gives us the opportunity to talk about some of the dangers on the internet for both young and old. Yeah, so I suppose, Michael, we'll, we'll start by talking about um, your young people. Um, I'd say most of your younger listeners are in school at the minute, but if their parents are listening, um, we want to give them some advice to protect their children from the dangers that can be posed online. Now, a lot of people aren't fully aware that um, to have a social media account, a child must be 13 years of age. Um, and although many children create social media accounts when they are younger, we would strongly, strongly advise against this. Now, this guideline has been degree- agreed by developers and those in control of social media apps, as they themselves don't believe these these rooms and, and, and these um, social media accounts to be safe places for children under the age of 13. If your child does have a social media account, uh, we would ask you to share the following tips with them. Always avoid sharing any location online. Pay attention to privacy settings and you as a parent and can alter those privacy settings and set them to the most robust setting that you can have. Always never ever share any personal information. Be mindful of other people's feelings because we are seeing um, 
you know, internet bullying mm. and internet harassing creeping mm. up. Mm. If you're posting a photograph, <laughs> we would ask kids to think of your granny. Mm. Now, if you're not comfortable sharing a photograph with your granny, then you shouldn't be posting it online. Okay. Um, and finally, block and report any abuse that you come across. If you come across any abuse, please tell a parent or a teacher and they in turn can contact us. Um, there is legislation to deal with bullying and abuse that occurs on online mm. um, and it's something we're seeing more and more of. It's actually a great tool for parents at the minute. Um, the WebWise web site, www.webwise.ie. Mm. I know today that they are holding seminars, online oh. seminars mm. for parents this evening. If you go onto that WebWise site you should be able to enrol for them and oh, they'll provide good. great information and advice. Very good. I think there could be a lot of interest in that uh, because an awful lot of the time parents think, there's nothing I can do or what do I do? They're miles ahead of me in terms of uh, this technology. And uh, we had a great text in earlier from Deirdre and Kells who says she thought TikTok was a clock. <laughs> but anyway, that, that's a different day's work altogether. But it does show the divide between young and old. And they're the kind of conversations you're asking parents to have with their children. But you are concerned about young and old uh, for mm-hmm. that matter and we can all fall victim to scams and there's many of them on the internet now. Absolutely Michael and unfortunately we are continuing to see online scams grow and I suppose there's one scam in particular I'd like to talk about today that's targeting adults. Um, this sophisticated scam is an email based scam and the individual targeted will receive correspondence from a company titling themselves as Bailiff Service of Ireland. The email will state that an outstanding debt payment is due and that failure to pay this debt will result in the so-called bailiff service attending the individual's home address to inventory their valuables. Now, the email will then request that the individual who's been targeted deposits a sum of money into an account and that bank details of this account are provided within the correspondence. So the advice we would like to continue to give to people, to members of the public, is please don't respond to any unsolicited email that Mm. is seeking personal, financial or security advice. Never ever click on a link or an attachment on an unsolicited email. Mm. Um, If you believe an email is genuine, then please independently verify it. And to independently verify it, we mean contact the branch of your bank that are purporting to be um, getting in contact with you or your service provider. And verify the information independently of the contact details provided on the email or on the website. So if you're targeted via an email or via a website, don't use the contact details on that to try and verify whether it's correct or not. Maybe pop in a quick Google search, Mm. maybe pop into your local branch, even sometimes look up um, the details in the phone book. Mm. And again, a, a lot of information on how to prevent fraud can be found on the Garda website. So if you click into garda.ie forward slash en forward slash crime forward slash fraud, we have a number of pointers there um, that, that you can share with with those around you, which will try and make the internet a safer place. Yeah, because some of these scams are very sophisticated uh, and uh, it's not unusual for people to be caught out and their bank accounts cleared out for that matter. And there really is a need for us all to stop it and think uh, uh, about that from time to time. Uh, Garda.ie okay. uh, and then follow the link on to crime and fraud. Yeah. 
Thank you. And indeed. as I say, we are yeah. no brother. We're seeing more and more of this, and they are getting more and more sophisticated. It's not just elderly people um, that maybe aren't au fait with the internet that they're targeting. They're getting more. Um, they're targeting younger people all the time, and people who might think of themselves as sort of computer literate. So everybody just needs to be more aware. Okay, very good. Thank you indeed, Garda Thanks, Kate. Michael. Thank you, Garda Kate Patterson of the Community Policing Unit with Dundalk Garda Station. Now, before we leave you today, let me bring you some more of the comments uh, that have come to us uh, through the morning. Uh, we'd Eamon and Dunleer in touch with us saying, Michael, I for one will uh, can say I've never had a problem with Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital and believe me, uh, I was in it many times. Uh, for treatment uh, and the treatment we got from the staff was amazing. Unfortunately, I can never understand when people slate it. Thank you, Eamon in Dunleer, for that. I have to echo that. I got a bit of treatment, quite a lot of treatment, if I'm to be honest, in Our Lady of Lourdes. Thankfully, it was a good long time ago, but I found it to be a fantastic hospital. And of course, uh, there's going to be exceptions uh, to every rule. Somebody in touch with us expressing they're sorry for Alison's loss. Fair play to you, Alison, says our caller. Your dad would be so proud of you. I had to shout out for my dad and our Lady of Lourdes 14 years ago. He'd taken a stroke and they wanted to put him in at home saying he'd never be able to walk again or do anything for himself. And when I raised my voice and begged for physio, uh, we got the help that he needed. And thank God he's still with us and can walk and has a quality of life. Uh, he's still thanking me. Be proud of yourself. Thank you indeed uh, for that. And uh, thanks uh, as well to Jack, uh, who wonders what's going on with uh, the Louth GAA Club Lotto Uh I'm sure somebody uh, might want to respond to that, Jack, but thank you for uh, your text of the programme today. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. That has to be the final word, though, because our time has run out on us. Uh, God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.